Welcome to this episode of the Yoga Therapy Hour. Tonight, our guest is Kate Holcomb from the Healing Yoga Foundation and Commonweal in San Francisco. Kate was a personal student of TKV Deskachar for many, many decades and always considered a daughter to him. I'll let you hear the story of how she met him in her imperfect state and how he impacted her life. And then we also talk about the different stages of life and how our practice evolves and changes depending on all the things that are happening from illness to taking care of our parents, to taking care of our children, to unexpected, to the planned things that we choose for ourselves. This episode is all about being with your yoga in an imperfect state and using the tools of yoga to help guide you through your life. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So I welcome you to our visit with Kate Holcomb, and let's go do it. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to be involved in the Optimal Estate community, we have a weekly yoga therapy clinic. We have a mobile app called the Optimal State and many other ways you can get involved with our Optimal State community. Come to www.theoptimalstate.com and find out ways that you can get involved with us. Thank you for listening and we welcome you to this episode. Today, I welcome my friend and colleague, Kate Holcomb. So nice to see you, Kate. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Kate, we really don't have a big plan for today, except that I think we're both interested in the idea of what does it mean to kind of live our yoga, especially with respect to family and stages of life and how living our yoga might change at different stages of life. So where would you like to begin? What are some thoughts that can get us started? I love that you're asking this and that we get to talk about it. I feel like it's actually so important, both in how we as yoga therapists and yoga practitioners use the tools and how they help us through our own changes and how life evolves with various challenges or surprises and things like that. And also for the people that we're working with. You know, I sort of fell into this very organically. I was always interested in bringing personalized yoga therapy to people in populations who might not normally have access to it, you know, as I think, you know, whether it's background ability, financial means, et cetera, which was the big impetus for starting Healing Yoga Foundation in 2006. And gratefully, you know, Sri TKV Desikachar, my teacher, always stressed the importance of adapting the practice to the individual, of course, rather than the other way around. And I've always appreciated this, that even in a group class, that the practice is modified as much as possible to the individual. And so, you know, over the years, for me, what this is means really being open to showing up, open to whoever shows up, me showing up for whoever shows up in front of me, but being open to whatever shows up and open to not just whoever shows up in front of me, but also open to the changes, the surprises, the challenges, as I mentioned, both planned and unplanned that life can bring. So for example, you know, when we're talking about working with life stages related to family, like having to take care of a parent 
suddenly a parent gets sick or a partner or maybe a child has some specific needs or maybe there's a planned loss in the family such as a divorce you know the family structure shifts or an unexpected loss due to a death in the family so as events occur and they change and impact the family system we have to be able to adapt to these changes as well of course also acknowledging this is the other thing i love about yoga therapy is acknowledging that family systems look very different for everyone And so how the family system looks different, how these changes, you know, divorce, illness, loss, et cetera, or a child with some special needs, for example, could also be invisible on the outside. And the individual who's facing those differing family dynamics often I'm imagining, you know, or could feel quite alone because of that perceived invisibility, right? Because families all look so differently and all these things happen, you know, we could perceive somebody as well off or with a lot of resources and we might not have any idea what's going on or what they're facing. So where our work as yoga therapists, I think is really exciting is that this means not only adapting the postures and the breathing practices and such, but also the length of the practice, also Mm -hmm. the kind of practice that we offer depending on availability of privacy, understanding that maybe the student doesn't have access to a quiet space or even a clean area to practice. So we adjust the practice to meet those needs of the student as well. So, you know, I'm constantly telling my students that our practice doesn't have to be an hour or an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes. And it doesn't have to look the way that we think you know, we might think it should based on the model of many yoga studios that I really encourage my students to practice. I try to offer practices that can really be adapted to time and place and space availability that could be done in the car waiting for the carpool pickup. I have one student who used to do the shitali breathing I gave him at stoplights in his car, you know, which I loved. I have students who told me they've done Niyasam under the table at board meetings or on the podium or in the car with one hand on the steering wheel and the other hand on their lap doing Niyasam. I have students who told me they've done Shitkari, like modified Shitali, you know, in line at the grocery store or some of those practices that we could do at the DMV or many of the patients I work with dealing with cancer, you know, all of these practices that can be done even in the middle of getting a scan that are subtle enough that could be done. You know, I see this in the yoga therapists that we train at the Optimal State Yoga Therapy School. There's this pacification of I'm anxious. I'm going to do this hand gesture underneath the table at work. I'm going to do shitali in my car. But then there's actually changing the baseline way that you function in the world. And for me, like a small practice like that, even if I do it multiple times a day, it pacifies me, but it doesn't really get to the root cause, you know, shamanam and shodhanam. And I almost feel like to really reset my nervous system and get into a deeper place where maybe some self analysis could happen. Like it almost does almost take me an hour practice to get there. So can you talk about that a little bit? Maybe not very advanced yet. <laughs> no, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I actually, I got to be honest, like going back to, so I have four children, which Amy, you know, yes, 
And they range in age right now from 21 to nine. So there's a 12 year difference between my oldest and my youngest. And I went from, you know, and I lived and worked in South India in Chennai with Mr. Deskachar for many, many years. And I would get up early and I'd get up with the sun and a nice long <laughs> practice, <laughs> including all the elements. Okay, and, I'm spoiled. <laughs> and, and when I had my first child, I remember sitting in the sits bath, like in the tub, you know, in this like Pyrex dish of herbs after tearing and giving birth. And I remember doing pranayama. That was the only space that I really could do it when I was sitting in this sort of sits bath doing my pranayama practice there. And I remember trying to do some things nursing also. And it was a great initiation for me because I remember, and I'm going to call out a good longtime old friend of mine and colleague, Brian Dorfman. He and his wife, Trisha Riley, were good friends of mine. And we were in close touch back in the day. And Brian called me up soon after my first son was born. And he said, Kate, how's your yoga practice going? And I said, oh, Brian, it's terrible. It's like in the pits. I hardly have any time to do, you know, I can't do this and I'm exhausted and I don't do any asana and this and that and blah, blah. And he said, Kate, 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 I didn't say, how's your asana practice going? I didn't even say, how's your pranayama practice going? I asked how your yoga practice is going. And I share that story with my students that, you know, that was such an important lesson for me to remember that I think of it as like all those five minutes here and five minutes there. And at the stoplight, I had to get really creative doing my practice once my kids were born. Sometimes I would do it in their bedroom because they wanted me there when they were going to sleep. And that was the only time I could do it. So I would say, okay, I'm right here in your room. And I would do my asana and I felt like it was actually really helpful because their breathing, I would do the slow breathing and then they would match my breathing. And whatever it was that I was able to do, I felt like it was just adding sort of money to my yoga account and little bit by bit. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. I hear you with the Shodanam and getting at that deep level. But for me, I have to say that one of the things I repeatedly tell my students is that so here's the thing, right? Even the best practice in the world, the, the most efficiently designed, like quote, perfect practice, if there is such a thing, it's not going to serve us if we're not actually doing it, if we don't have the time to do it yeah. or if we're constantly being interrupted. And so for me, I found that the real value was in being nimble. And I would tell my students, like, sometimes I said, just do something. So even if you just take your practice and you just sort of blindly pick one and go, okay, I'm going to do this one thing today. I mean, in my experience over 30 years now of practice and almost 22 years of which I've had children for, that's been invaluable. And because usually what happens is I pick that one favorite thing that I want to do, or I feel like I have time to do. And that usually feels so good that then I'm like, I'll do this also. And maybe I'll do this. And then instead of a three minute practice, it turns out to be about 20. And then when I really have time, then it's an hour or an hour and 20. But I don't know. I feel like the adaptability was the, for me, was the name of the game. And that deep Shodanam part, I feel like has shown up for me over time, not in the amount of time I spend on the practice every day, but just in the consistency of the practice, even if it's a little bit every day. 
two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, back to two minutes, whatever it is, it's been a huge support for me. And I try to encourage that in my students also. I'm reminded of us being at Gray Bear for one of the yoga therapy modules. And I know you were there. I'm not sure if you were there the same time Sir was there, Sir Deskachar, but do you remember him going in the broom closet for five minutes at a time? <laughs> like literally, he'd walk to the back of the room, open a literal broom closet that was like three feet by three feet. There was probably a little chair in there and he'd sit in there and do pranayama and then pop back out like literally three to five minutes. Were you there that time? Yeah. And I've heard stories about how on the airplane, he would just put a blanket over his head on the airplane and do some pranayama. You know, it's interesting because Amy, it also reminds me, you know, one of our first outreach programs, Healing Yoga Foundation was with Compass Homeless Family Services, where we taught a weekly group class for homeless families. So here were people who actually didn't have the privacy or the stability of their own home or their own private space, and they were managing children. And so I don't know, I just love that the most about the practice needing to adapt to the individual and not the other way around. And part of our work as yoga therapists isn't just adapting the, of course, the postures and the practices or what, but also keeping in mind these other factors that might be taken for granted that somebody has a home or, you know, we also had an outreach program at the domestic violence women's shelter too. So here were also women who had an unstable home environment. And I know that these practices helped them. You know, they told us repeatedly how helpful it was for them to, you know, one dad at the Compass Homeless Family Services who was trying to get off of heroin and was dealing with an infant daughter told mm -hmm. us how the practices that we taught him, he started to get frustrated because the stroller, he couldn't get the stroller and the baby on the bus or off the bus. And people were getting annoyed and sort of yelling at him <laughs> And he told us how he just was like, you know, started doing some of the practices. And he said that it saved him. He said, normally he would have, you know, lost his temper or he would have gotten maybe thrown off the bus and started using again or whatever it was. And so little things like that can have such a huge impact. Yeah. I think sometimes people, because the expectation is so high that I have to be in a room by myself you know, for X amount of minutes, I think people think, well, I can't do that. So why bother just moving on? I mean, you probably have students like this too, that just say, well, I, I didn't do my practice. And like you're saying, it doesn't need to be 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 40 minutes. You know, in 2015, I was diagnosed with an aggressive breast cancer and it was a very brutal treatment. It was actually a couple years of intensive treatment. And I had lots of side effects, as you can imagine. And my yoga practice completely changed. So I couldn't do the physical postures that I was used to doing. I was very sick. You know, I was having spontaneous nosebleeds. It made pranayama very difficult, you know, and that was when I really, really came to appreciate the value of a short. And I, you know, maybe at some point later, if we have time, I can tell you about the practice that I just started doing for myself, but it helped me so much. And I love it. it. I want to hear it. <laughs> I mean, I tell people this and they can hardly believe me because it feels like nothing. And it was so powerful and effective for me. So just imagine I was so sick and 
just in the midst of such intense treatment. And all I could manage to do was I would sit on the edge of my bed every night and I would place one palm on my heart and I placed the other palm on my head and sort of here. And I would close my eyes and I would just say to myself really quietly, I would just say, just rest in your heart, just rest in your heart. I don't even know if you can hear me. I'm saying it so softly. I just reminded myself to rest. I would just say, rest in your heart. And I repeated it maybe three times, really, really softly, just like this with my eyes closed. And I would do a few breaths and that's all I could manage. It probably took 45 seconds and it became a lifeline for me, a lifeline for me in so many different ways. And if you looked at me from the outside, you would say, oh, that's not a practice. That's nothing, but it was invaluable. And I also have to say, you know, I have to give a shout out to, you know, my favorite yoga therapy strategy is yoga sutra. And so I also incorporate with every student, we might not think of yoga sutra as being one of the many tools of yoga therapy, but I find it invaluable. Like every student I work with, I'm introducing a concept, a strategy, a tool. So on top of the, and that's really, I think what helps people get to the Shodana, in my opinion, that deeper level is actually working constantly running through the sutras. I mean, I remember in 1991, when I first went to India and I was first studying with Mr. Daskachar and Mary Louise Skelton was there who first introduced me to him. I asked her how long she spends practicing yoga every day, like how long her practice was. And she said, I like to believe that I'm practicing yoga all day, every day. And I loved that too. I thought that's it, right? She's incorporating the sutra and all these practices, because ultimately it's about shifting our patterns. It's about seeing more clearly. It's about moving away from patterns and habits that are, that aren't serving us as well and finding a more positive way to move forward where we see more clearly. And of course we're connected to the authentic self. So let's go there for a few minutes because I'm not sure how we know that say we're studying the yoga sutra or teacher gives us yoga sutra 131 or something to think about. How do we know we're not fooling ourselves? I see it all over the place and I may be doing it too, where we really think we've figured it out. We have clarity. We're making progress towards being a healthier, happier version of ourselves. And we're really not. Do you see this in the yoga world? Not for us to be judging if somebody is or isn't, but it, you know, there's a lot of dysfunction. (laughs) I mean, that's a fair point. Honestly, I would say my students probably hear me say the most that what I thought you were going to ask is how we know for ourselves, if we're seeing clearly. Yeah, that is the question, I think. And of course, I think, you know, having a good, a reliable mirror is invaluable. And that reliable mirror you know, if you're lucky enough to have a good teacher as your reliable mirror, I don't think that's the only reliable mirror in our lives. You know, I think that a good friend, a partner, a trusted colleague, a therapist, anyone who's a reliable mirror for us that can help us in our own self-discovery process. I mean, that is a big part of the work required of a yoga practice is it's a self-discovery process and we have to do that rigorous self-examination. So we don't always know. <laughs> and I think that if we keep that humility 
that we don't always know. And of course, I always go back to Anushasanam, you know, the, the third word in the first chapter of Yoga Sutra, in the very first sutra, is Anushasanam, which means ongoing, as you know, ongoing, experiential. We have to do it, practice. So, I mean, I love that because it reminds me that I also don't have to get it right every time. I'm not expected to be perfect. This is a process. I'm doing the best I can in this moment, understanding that I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not going to get it right every time. I'm trying to see clearly and I'm not going to let myself off the hook. I also always tell my students, it's this wonderful process of holding ourselves accountable. We have to do the work. We have to hold ourselves accountable. And we also have to be gentle with ourselves and remember that it is a process and we're not going to get it right every time. And when we do fall on our faces or we make a mistake, there's an opportunity there. And believe me, many times through gritted teeth, have I reminded myself, you know, opportunity, <laughs> it's there. So I don't know that that helps for me. I don't know if that helps, but I guess the other thing I would say about that is that I also try to remind my students that ultimately the work is about keeping our own backyards clean. And it's so easy, right? It's so easy for me to peek over into my neighbor's yard. Got garbage in your yard. Yeah, exactly. Or like, oh, they certainly haven't picked up their dog poop or like, oh, look at all those weeds or, you know, like I tell my students, like clean up the dog poop in your own backyard, focus on your own weeding. And maybe that will inspire somebody else or that's the best we can do. And it doesn't mean that we don't care or we don't, you know, protest wrongs in the world or, you know, it just means that really our work is keeping our own selves clean. And that's really hard. It's actually really hard. That's a lifetime of work. And, yes. and if I notice huh. that my neighbors aren't staying clean or my colleague or whatever, or they're not in alignment with my values, well, you know, yoga is also about being empowered to consciously choose. Then I establish my own boundaries and I'm really clear and, oh, that person's not in alignment with my own values or you know, then I get to decide how I'm going to move forward. Did you know that we have a Patreon community? This community helps to support the Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour production. It's not cheap to bring these episodes to you every single week. And we hope that you'll support us in giving you this great content every week. So head over to Patreon. And as you'll see, there are different tiers. But my favorite tier is the one that delivers Yoga Nidra to you on a regular basis, where you can just tune in on Patreon and download the yoga nidras that will help you sleep better, have less pain, manage your anxiety, help you come out of depression and burnout. So many great gifts on our Patreon page, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Thank you for your support. We really appreciate you. I think that's really what it boils down to. It's one thing I've always appreciated about you is to know yourself so well that you know what your boundaries are, you know who you are, you're not worried about if people are looking over the fence at the garbage in your yard, like that's not a concern of yours. You're just trying to keep your integrity to the best of your ability based on your values and beliefs, full stop. Yeah. I mean, it's the best any of us can do, right? And again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out and fight for what we believe in. You know, that's part of our own personal values. That's unique to all of us. And 
you know, try to be a voice for the underserved or the voiceless, if that's what calls to us, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't care about those things or we don't act in ways that call to us in that way. That's what gives us meaning. You know, that's also what I love about yoga practices. The goal isn't to make us all the same or to make us these unfeeling zombies, right? The goal is to help each of us be connected and acting from our own true authentic selves, seeing as clearly as possible. And whatever that looks like, that's going to look differently for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And at different stages of life. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. For you, can you talk to us about the early days, maybe even what you and Sir worked on together? I know you were his personal student for many decades. And then you became a mother of four children. You're not probably moving into another phase of life as your children get older. Like how has your practice changed throughout those stages of life? What a nice question. I would say one of the biggest things I appreciate about Desika Char is that, you know, in the early days, I would feel frustrated. Like I always wanted to learn more. I felt like I should be a better teacher. I felt like I should be doing more. I should be practicing more. And sir always used to say to me that your family is your first priority. And he used to say that yoga will always be there for you. Yoga will always be there for you to serve you throughout your whole life. But this is what your family requires of you right now. And I love this concept, you know, thinking about as much as I do about yoga sutra, it reminds me a little bit of this concept of abhyasa and vairagyam in Sutra 112 that, you know, we could say at one level is that, you know, Abhyasa, as you move towards whatever practice is helping you achieve that state of more focused attention and Abhyasa is the letting go or relinquishing of whatever might be impeding or blocking you. But I think of it very much in the way that Sir reminded constantly was reminding me about my priorities because I made a conscious choice to have children. And this is why I brought this up earlier, because sometimes our family structure or life stages, you know, things change that are out of our control. But especially when we make a conscious choice, I made a conscious choice. All four of my children were conscious choices, you know, very much wanted. And I love that sutra because at a deeper level, it reminds us of our own agency and taking responsibility. So for example, I guess what I mean is it acknowledges that in order to do anything, we have to give something up. So if I made a conscious choice to have a child, something else has to go. There's a natural viragium with that. You know, I adopted the street dogs from India. You know, I have two dogs now. I, same thing with, if I make a conscious choice to take care of an animal or another living thing, then I have a responsibility to that. And then other things go. So instead of saying like, Amy, I really want to go camping with you, but I have to go pick up my kid or I have to take care of my dog, which we do sometimes, you know, do you hear people talk like that? And instead, I really encourage my students to try to take that ownership and just shifting it feels better inside to say, Amy, I would love to go camping with you. That sounds so fun. And maybe we could find another time because of course I also have my beautiful dogs or my child has their school play that weekend. And I'm really excited about seeing that, or, you know, I have my responsibility to walk my dogs. So it just feels different. It's the same, right? But it feels different when I can say, Oh, 
I consciously chose this responsibility. So something else has to fall instead of this. I have to do this. I have to do that, which then feels like I'm being dragged around and I've lost my own agency, my own power. Mm. So you were saying in the early days, it sounded like you wanted to do more, more, more. And Sir was like, look, (laughs) your, your yoga is your family. This is the choice you've made in a positive way. And how did your practice change? And you're just, you know, not on the mat specifically, but once you had four children. So, you know, as I said, really being flexible, really being flexible with practice. I remember Menika actually telling me that she used to do her asana and pranayama practice in the hall of the house, you know, while the kids were getting ready in the morning. And I very much did that. I I would do it maybe more in the afternoons when they would come home from school and I wanted to be there with them. So I would do it on the living room floor. I remember my kids sort of crawling under me when I was in Devi Potapitam or, you know, loving to crawl under when I was in Downward Dog or, for example, any of those. Then, like I said, I used to do it sometimes at night when they went to bed. I definitely fell into a pattern of doing my practice more and more late in the evening, you know, as time went on after they went to bed. You know, this is also a misconception. You know, people think, oh, you have to wake up and do your practice first thing in the morning and For many, many years, actually now, even still, I'm in that habit because I take care of my dogs first thing in the morning. So I still do my practice in the evening before I go to bed. And I used to do quite a vigorous asana practice and then pranayama late at night. You know, I'm more of a night owl anyway, but I'd say 11, 1130 midnight and I slept great. I do my pranayama and my meditation and then I'd sleep. Now, of course, I can't do such a vigorous asana practice still just because of the side effects of my treatment and the drugs that I'm on, but I still do it later in the evening. And I've been to your home. It's a beautiful home in San Francisco, but As we know, if you're living in the city like that, it can be tighter quarters. So you're doing this in a fairly small space with four children, two dogs and a husband. (laughs) Yes. Just picture Kate, you know, in her home. Well, it did mean that I did have to modify. I mean, sometimes over the years, Sri Desikachari would give me different meditation practices that sometimes involved sound or chanting. And I was very, I don't know if shy is the right word. I was very conscious that I had a sleeping family in the Mm -hmm. evening. And so, you know, I would go downstairs and I'd be in the front and I'd do it very quietly. And so I adjusted things like that. But no matter how I adjusted it again, just back to what I said in the beginning, like I always tried to do something. And I think that that mattered. That made a big difference for me. And I also never wanted, this was also important related to family and stages is I never wanted my kids or my partner for that matter to feel like this is my yoga time and you can't disturb me. And I get it. Like there's the importance of establishing boundaries and doing things for myself and all that. But it was important to me that I didn't want them to ever feel resentful of my yoga practice or, or associate it with sort of like barking at, you, you know what I mean? Me barking at them. I'm to trying quiet. to be at peace over here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just was very, you know, it was very organic and sort of flowy and I didn't give myself a hard time. You know, there were lots of evenings where I would have liked to spend more time in meditation or 
do have a longer practice, but you know, I needed to bake something for my kids field trip the next day or, or bake sale or, you know, whatever it was. And again, it was back to, I think that's why I mentioned that, you know, about sir and the priority and conscious choice is that I would remind myself like, this is what I chose. I love this. I feel lucky every day to have this family. And it doesn't mean that I don't need time to myself. I'm also really an extreme introvert. So <laughs> imagine that like me in this tiny house where even the people I love most in the world, right? That's how I knew I was an introvert. I was like, Oh, I love these people more than anything. And still I'm like, please, can you just be quiet? You know, but you know, it's the ways that we can find it, you know, and I would see the other thing, Amy, that I had to do to adapt, not just in my own personal practice related to family and life changes was my work schedule. You know, I was, when we started Healing Yoga Foundation, we were doing teacher trainings. I was teaching, I still do at Commonweal at their cancer help program. I was teaching six residential retreats a year. I was also teaching residential trainings out at Commonweal. We were doing day long retreats. So a lot of my weekends and I'd be gone for weeks at a time and one of the reasons why I'd say the main reason why Healing Yoga Foundation really shifted forms in 2013, that was even before my daughter was born in 2014, was I didn't want to spend so much time away from my family, you know? So we restructured Healing Yoga Foundation so that I could have more time for myself and for my kids. And then of course, when I had my diagnosis, I really cut back and shifted things and stopped, you know, reprioritizing you know, a nurse said to me at the beginning of my diagnosis, she said, just for as long as you can try not to do anything that you don't really want to do. And of course we have to work and we have responsibilities, but I still think about that. I still think like, okay, as much as possible, like, you know, I'm not independently wealthy. So, you know, neither, neither is my partner. So we have to work, we have responsibilities, but I thought that was pretty great that I still try to think about what she's like, is this something that I really, really want to do? right? Life is short. And so I not only adapting my own practice over the years, it was adapting how I work with others and the amount that I work with others and maybe not taking on as many students and maybe cutting back some of our outreach programs, which was very hard for me because I love that work. I love the work that I get to do. I love it more than anything. I'm so lucky I get to do meaningful work. So that was also part of walking my talk. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I got to do this for myself and for my family and my priorities. And that means letting something go, you know, back to that Vairagyam again and recognizing that it is a conscious choice. Absolutely. I can really resonate with that. And I think that is one thing, having a diagnosis like that makes you realize like, why am I doing things that are frustrating or not meaningful or just I'm not having fun with it anymore? I quickly cut all of that out and I'm glad. All right. So one more question and then we'll wrap it up and see how we can connect with you. But can you tell us a little bit about the impact that Sir had on your life? Because I think you're one of the few students that really studied with him as a private student for real. I think a lot of people claim that, but to actually be his private student for so many years... Can you tell us what that means to you to have him as your teacher? What a beautiful question, Amy. Wow. Thank you so much for asking that. First of all, I do feel lucky 
every single day. It was quite an accident and actually a literal accident. As you know, I was in India on the study group and I was hit by a motorcycle <laughs> and Mary Louise Skelton brought me to see him, which was really what started that more personal relationship. And then when Mary Lou died, you know, very soon after that, she died of breast cancer. And I was with her in those final weeks, her last few weeks as she was in her dying process. And very interestingly, actually two things happened there is one that really changed my life. Those last few weeks of Mary Lou's death, I got to see firsthand the incredible power of the tools of yoga, because here she was in the dying process you know, she had a lot more she wanted to live for, and she was definitely in a lot of pain and she clearly wasn't suffering. And so that's where I really saw the power of yoga's healing potential. And that healing of course looks different for everyone and isn't necessarily about curing, but also in those final weeks, every single day, she kept saying to me, you can trust Mr. Descatcher. He will never harm you. He will never be inappropriate. And I think that she was worried that, you know, she wanted me to know, to be able to trust him. She knew enough about my background and childhood and all that. And she wanted to make sure that I wouldn't run away sort of, or not sticking with it. You know, I was sort of shy and I can honestly say the main thing that I tell people when I talk about my relationship with Mr. Jessica and this is true, is that every single thing that's good in my life, every single thing that I have right now is because of him. And I don't know if you remember this, Amy, but when I met him, when I first started sitting with him, I was still an active alcoholic. I got, did you remember that? Or did you know that? I thought you were going to say something different about, I think you maybe thought you didn't want children or maybe. Well, that's true too. That's true too. A hundred percent true. I, isn't that the irony? So, so I'm glad you remembered that too. But first of all, I was an active alcoholic when I met him. And the first year, you know, 1991, I didn't get sober until I met him in August. I started studying with him in August of 91. I didn't get sober until October of 92. Mm -hmm. So over a year, and I was with him in India for those, that first six months. And if he had said to me, Kate, I know that you're drinking every day and I can't teach you yoga unless you stop drinking. I mean, I probably wouldn't be alive today. I certainly wouldn't be involved in yoga in any way at all, or any meaningful way, I would have said, you know, see you later, but you know, I was still an addict then. And he used to say, you know, you have to add something positive before the students able to let go, you know, of something. And that was very true for me. So first of all, he was a big part of how I was able to get sober mm -hmm. and, you know, he modeled for me over the years of living in India for so long and studying with him every day and being really taken in as a part of his family, as I was, I was able to see how he and Menika really just took me in. And also you've heard him say too, you know, he referred to me as his daughter and there was that level of it too, where I got to see this healthy family modeled. And so thank God, I know because of him, I was able to find a wonderful partner for myself. Mm -hmm. And then I was very reluctant to have children. As you remember, isn't that hilarious that I have four? I was afraid actually to have children because I didn't know how to be a parent. I didn't think I would be uh, good at it. And he supported me through all of it. I mean, every single positive good thing in my life, I can trace back to him and his support. And yeah, there's some other things I can say too. Just the level of his 
connection. And, you know, I never wanted to bother him. As you know, I was in India for many years. And then when I came back to the States, we communicated by fax. Remember that. <laughs> and, and actually I have this beautiful, I was looking at them recently, a few months ago, I have this beautiful file of just stacks of faxes back and forth to each other. It's so touching. And often what would happen is if, you know, something happened and there were some health things with my children or, you know, pregnancies and this and that, and, you know, as anybody does some difficulties over the years, and I never wanted to bother him. And so I was always reluctant to call him or fax. And then I would be sort of agitated or upset or worried about this thing in my life for a couple of days. And then all of a sudden, like a fact would come through. It was amazing to me. And it was like, he just knew somehow. And I asked him one time after enough of this, I was like, okay, this is cannot be a coincidence. And it's like, how would he know these things? And he said to me one time, when I asked him, he said, sometimes information is received. <laughs> Maybe I will just end with this. One of my professors used to say to me, which I love this. He said, in order to be successful at anything, you need three things. And he said, you need someone to believe in you. Number one. And he said, number two, you need to believe that person. Mm. And number three, you need to do the work. And when I heard that, I thought, I'm so lucky. You know, that's exactly what Mr. Deskachar did for me is that when I couldn't see the, my own light in myself, when I felt like I had been, you know, when I was a swamp creature and crawled out of the swamp and I felt like I was still stained and mucked up, he saw something in me that I couldn't see. And he reflected that back. And even though I didn't believe in myself, I trusted him right back to Mary Lou's words, like trust him. You can believe him. I did. I believed him and I trusted him that if he saw something, if he saw some glimmer of light there, then there must be something there. And as he pointed out, I did the work, you know, one time he said to me, Kate, so many people have come to India or come to study with me and <laughs> they don't do anything with it. And so I appreciated that too, that it was all him hundred percent. I think of that a lot as a good reminder that it's back to that Anushasana, mm -hmm. you know, we still have to show up. We could have the best practice in the world. We could have the best teacher in the world, but we still have to show up every day, sort of that, atta, you know, what is it that turning point for us that we have to show up every day. And if we have someone who believes in us <laughs> and we can actually believe that person, it can make a huge, huge difference in just getting us to put one foot in front of the other. And that's what he did for me. Just by believing in me, I was able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I trusted him and do the practices and it worked in ways that, I mean, I still can't even believe. I feel lucky every day for and grateful to be able to pass on. Yeah. You know, I feel like the one thing that haunted me when I was really in the throes of my own treatment and that the seriousness of that diagnosis is, of course, I wanted to be around for my kids as long as possible on this planet with them. Also, I thought about, sir, you know, he used to call himself the postman and he would say, oh, I'm just a postman. I'm just passing on what I received from my teacher. I felt like a thief. You know, I felt like, oh my God, I received all this from Sri Desikachar and I haven't passed it on yet in the way that I want to. And so I'm trying to be a better post person also.
<laughs> in gratitude to him. So yeah. I think it's a beautiful way to close tonight. So Kate, if people wanted to be in touch with you, do you give workshops? Do you do online studies, retreats? Are you not taking new students? What? <laughs> Tell us what we can expect. It's such a funny question that you ask that. I love teaching. I would say my favorite thing in the world. And I still do work with people individually, you know, for yoga therapy, mostly it's referrals from doctors and physicians. My favorite thing is to teach yoga sutra, mm -hmm. as you might imagine. I do do that. I have students all over the country who I work with teaching yoga sutra and as, you know, personal and professional development and mentoring, but mostly through yoga sutra. And I have a couple of sutra series that I do, which are quite fun. And I really enjoy, I am the world's worst, probably like social media person. <laughs> there is a healing yoga SF as I very rarely occasionally post things on Instagram. And then of course the healingyoga.org website is still sort of in some phase of reworking it a little, although there's a great resources page with some of my old articles I wrote about Yoga Sutra and whatnot. But basically people who know me, even the Lizzie, the old co-director Healing Yoga Foundation used to say that I'm like a hermit in a cave. I'm sort of very hard to find. I don't promote myself or advertise in any way. So I feel like if people find me, there's you know, I go like that. I'm like, oh, you found me somehow. <laughs> like, you must have had to yes. work pretty hard. Yeah, it was like something brought you here. You must have had to work pretty hard to get here. So usually, so I'll be leaving a website or any clues. <laughs> <laughs> the audience just has to figure um, it out on their own if they really want to. <laughs> um, but I would like to be a better post person, and you know, I'm trying to figure out how to get out a lot of the gems and what I've received. I mean, nothing brings me greater joy than passing on what I received from Sri Jessica Char. So it's, again, this is a perfect topic. It's all just about balancing my personal and professional and family life and priorities and values. And like, most importantly, everybody, please like our time for ourselves, you know, one final plug, I guess, for our own personal practices, even if it's like time for yourself to walk your favorite hike or walk through the woods or on the beach or, you know, all of us have demands, whether it's children or animals we're caring for or aging parents or others in our community, just the importance of connecting with ourselves and taking time to do that. So I'm really trying to be better at that too. Just modeling that really respecting. Respecting your own needs. Yes. You know, many of us, I think, especially those of us in the field of yoga therapy and other professions like that, like we want to help others. It feels good to do this kind of work. And it can be so hard to take that time for ourselves without feeling selfish. And in the more recent years, I've really come to understand how it's so not selfish, you know, that it's really invaluable for us to do that and to model it for others, you know, the value of that self-care. Well, thank you, Kate, for taking the time with us. And I really appreciate the moments I get with you knowing what a busy mom and teacher you are. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's so much fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
A big thank you to Kate for being with us today. There's so many gems to take away from this interview. I think I'll probably listen to it multiple times when it comes out. But for now, the thing I'd like to kind of leave us with is something that Kate learned from TKV Deskachar in the early days of studying with him. She had wanted to learn more, to do more, to practice more. And basically what he asked her to do is just to be present in this moment, attend to your family, live your yoga, and not worry so much about information gathering and collecting and climbing your way up the ladder and trying to be more and trying to be higher and trying to be the best student or the best teacher. He basically told her to bring it down to the basics and just be with what is, be exactly who you are, do your best, clean up your side of the fence, full stop. I think we can all do that. If we just keep it that simple, we can do that. So I wish you well this evening from Minnesota, going out into the cold now, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour and Beyond. If you've enjoyed this program, there's a few things you can do to help us. You can share this episode with colleagues, friends, and family. You can give us a great rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. You can support us on Patreon. And you can download the Optimal State mobile app and start using it to track your own nervous system. All of these things will help us to produce and give you the gift of the Yoga Therapy Hour for many years to come. Thank you, our listeners, for supporting us. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.